Uh, I hope you've all been really blessed through our study of Genesis. I know I have. You know, Genesis is really one of the most foundational books in the whole Bible. It gives us the foundation of who God is, who we are as people. It gives us the foundation of who Jesus is and why he came. It gives us the foundation of things like providence and grace and calling. And these are just things that are so fundamental to our Christian faith. And they're all found, the beginning of these things is found here in the book of beginning. Genesis, but today we come to the end of the beginning. So let's go ahead and pray as we get into the word today. Heavenly Father, we come to you with expectation, with joyful hope in Jesus. Lord, thank you for coming to us and saving us. Thank you that as we study Genesis, Lord, we have seen your grand master plan, Lord. That plan, that story that you're still even writing today, Lord. That story that you even want to use our lives to be a part of writing. And Lord, we ask this morning as we study the end the book of the beginnings, Lord, we pray that, Lord, you would speak to us, that you would speak to us a living word and a message that speaks directly to us and to our hearts, Lord, to teach us, to inform us, to edify us, and to equip us for the work of ministry, Lord, the work of carrying on your mission, of joining with you in your mission. So, Lord, we ask that we might have open hearts this morning, and, Lord, that you might plant the seed of your word, and that our hearts would be good soil that's able to receive it and bear much fruit for your name's sake and for your glory and for the good of the people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. What we've seen over the past nine months is that the book of Genesis is really a book of biographies. Uh, it's a book of the and their relationships, and specifically, it is concerned with different people and how they related to God. The book begins essentially with God, and that, that's the first and primary relationship. Because God is a triune before he created man. He was in relationship. The Father and the Son and the Spirit together. And this book begins by showing us this relationship that they have. And then it continues with God creating mankind, creating people, and tells us the stories of how different people related to God. And the question that this book poses for us, presents before us, for us to consider as a whole, is this. How will you relate to God? That's the question that this book asks us. Because there are many ways that people did relate to God. There are many ways that people relate to God today as well. There are many ways that, that different people in this room even relate to God. And the question it asks us is, is will you rebel against God like Adam and Eve and Cain and the people in Noah's day? Or will you believe God? Will you believe his promises? Will you answer his call like Noah, like Abraham? Will you walk with him by faith? Will you be a godless person, not at all concerned with the things of God like Esau was? Or will you be a person like Jacob, who repents of sin and turns to God? Will you be a person like Joseph, who trusts God even in the midst of great difficulty? So today, again, we turn to the final chapter of Genesis. This is chapter 50. And in this final chapter of Genesis, we've been studying, or in this last part of Genesis, for the last couple of weeks, we've been studying the life of Joseph. Now, Joseph's story takes up roughly a quarter of the book of Genesis, a good chunk. I think of this, that, and this has really been my experience as well. If you would ask the average person today who is skeptical of the Bible and of Christianity, if you could ask them, why are they skeptical of the Bible? Why are they skeptical of Christianity? Most of their objections would not be intellectual. They would be personal. 
Have you found that to be true? And most of the, the people who have objections to Christianity, most of the time, the great majority, they're not intellectual objections, they're personal. In other words, the average person today is not objecting to Christianity, does not have a problem with receiving Jesus because, say for example, they have trouble believing in the supernatural or believing in miracles. The average person today would say something like, well, I have trouble accepting this because this thing happened to me. And I can't understand why, if God is a loving God, then why would he allow this to happen? Why would he allow this thing to happen to this person I love if he is a loving God? And I struggle with that. Why would God say this about this person who I care about? Their personal objections. And the story of Joseph really deals directly with these objections, with these questions, these personal questions. How could a good God allow bad things to happen? Where is God when bad things happen to decent people? Over the past weeks, we've been looking at this story and learning the message of the story of Joseph's life. Because this isn't just historical data. It's not just a bunch of facts about a guy who lived one time and did some stuff. This is a story which is written in a particular way because it wants to teach us a particular thing about God. And what this story teaches us about God is that he is providential. That's really the overarching theme of the story of Joseph, is the providence of God. And, and what the providence of God means is this, that God is above all things. He's above all things. And yes, we live in a broken world where there's evil and there is sin, and bad things happen every day, and bad things happen to everybody, but God is greater than sin. God is greater than sin. God is greater than evil. God is greater than you and me. God is above all things. He's providential. He's able to take even those things which are evil, even those things which are meant for evil, and he's able to use them for good and for his purposes in terms of the glorious and good out of even the worst things. And that's the hope that we have in him, that truly he is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Jesus told his disciples, he said, in this world, you will have tribulation. He said this, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And Joseph himself, he comes to this place in this story, where after years and years of suffering, you know what he says? He says, I would not have chosen any of the things that happened to me. I would have never chosen those things, but looking back, I would not change a thing. Because although those things that happened to me were terrible, what God did out of all of them was good and glorious. See, what happened to Joseph was when he was a teenager, his brothers were envious of the special attention that he was getting from his dad. So what they did is that they ambushed him and they threw him in a pit. They almost killed him, but then they decided to sell him into slavery just to get rid of him. And so Joseph ends up a slave. He's taken down by these traitors to Egypt. And he later becomes a prisoner, falsely accused of a crime he didn't commit. But through a, an amazing series of events, which was orchestrated by God, Joseph ends up becoming the prime minister of Egypt. He ends up heading up this great hunger relief program, which saves tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of lives, both Egyptians and people from the entire region because this was a, uh, a great famine in the whole region. And through this great hunger relief program, he ends up being reunited with his family. 
because they come to buy food from him because there's famine in their land too. And he reconciles with his brothers and he's reunited with his dad. And then he brings them down to live with him in Egypt. But after 17 years, since the families moved down to Egypt, Jacob, the dad, dies. That's what we talked about last week, the death of Jacob. And so now in this final chapter of Genesis, there's a question that hangs in the air. The question is this, now that their father is no longer around, will Joseph continue to love his brothers and forgive his brothers for what they've done to him? Or is this the time when he will finally seek revenge now that dad's not around him? Has he truly forgiven his brothers, or was he just being nice to them for the sake of their father? Now that dad's gone, how is Joseph going to treat his brothers? That's the question that hangs and the brothers are very concerned about this as well. We heard about this in our reading. So what they do is they send a message to Joseph. And it essentially says, Joseph, Dad said you have to be nice to us. you got to be nice to us, Joseph. Dad said so. And Joseph hears this, and he weeps. He's a bit of a crier, this guy is, but, you know, that's okay. He's not, it's not like he's listening to, like, Elton John songs, watching The Notebook and crying. He's just, he, he's got some true emotions, you know, and then he expresses them, so he weeps. And this isn't this kind of loud, sobbing, weeping, where, you know, mucus coming out of your nose and stuff. This is, this is more of a quiet, reserved weeping. It is a sense that he hears his brothers come, and they send this message that, Dad said, you have to be nice to us, and you can't, you're not allowed to get back at us. And he, just tears roll down his eyes. He's sad. He's saddened by this information, you know? Because the fact is that Joseph truly has forgiven his brothers, and he truly does love them, and he's expressed this love to them for many years now in many ways. He's taken care of them. He's reached out to them. He's embraced them. He has forgiven them, but they still think he's holding a grudge against them. They still think that these acts of love and kindness that he's done to them for all these years, that they weren't really sincere, that this was just an act that Joseph was putting on for the sake of their dad. And this breaks Joseph's heart that after all this time, they still don't believe that he's sincerely forgiven them and sincerely loves them. They still think he's angry and bitter against them and just waiting for the right moment to pounce on them and let them have them. And so Joseph weeps, but then he responds to his brothers and he makes Three incredible statements that it's really going to be what we're focusing on today. Three incredible statements in verse 19, 20, and 21, which serve to put the, his brothers at, uh, at ease, and they also serve to complete and really bring closure to this reconciliation that he's been trying to bring with them over these years. And these three things that Joseph says here, I want you to see that these are three marks of a man whose heart has been truly changed by grace. He's been touched by the grace of God. These are the marks of it on his life. These are three very important marks, which I believe also God wants to work in all of our lives. These are marks of Christian maturity. And I believe that God desires to work out all of these things in our lives. So here's what we're going to focus on today. Here are the three things that Joseph does. In verse 19, Joseph avoids God's chair. In verse 20, Joseph takes God's view. And in verse 21, he images God's love. So again, the three things are Joseph avoids God's chair, Joseph takes God's view, and thirdly, Joseph images God's love. In verse 19, Joseph says to them, 
Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? He says, am I in the place of God? You know, this is actually a really important theme throughout the Bible. Putting yourself in the place of God. Occupying that seat that only God can occupy. Doing those things which are only God's to do, which only God has the right to do. That, that's the root of many of our problems, actually. And uh, I would put it this way. There are two fundamental truths that everybody needs to know. Number one, there is a God. And number two, you are not Him. That's really important, right? There is a God, and you're not Him. It's important to know your place. There are certain things which only God has the right to do, and which only God has the ability to do. And it's important that we not be presumptuous and put ourselves in His place. In 2 Kings chapter 5, we read the story of Naaman. Now Naaman is this Assyrian general, and he gets leprosy. And Naaman hears that there is power in Israel for healing. So what does Naaman do? He packs up all his stuff, he sends messengers, he goes down to Israel, meets with the king of Israel, and he says, Hey, I'm Naaman, I'm here for my healing. I heard that you guys you know, do healing down here, so I'm here, give me my healing. And the king of Israel hears this, and he rips his clothes, because he's so grieved by that. He rips his clothes and he says, Am I in the place of God? Can I kill or make alive? No. You know, he's saying, hey, mister, I'm a king. There are a lot of things that I can do, but there are certain things which only God can do. And you're asking, you're coming to me, looking for me to do something which only God has the power to do, which only God has the right to do. Don't come to me looking for something that can only be found in God. So there are things that only God can do. There are things which only God has the right to do. And when you try to do those things, what you're doing is putting yourself in the place of God. And that is not something that God takes lightly. It is very much at the root of our problems, many of our problems that we experience. So let me run through some of these things with you, which we find in God's word that only God has the right to do. So number one, only God can give and take away life. That's what the king of Israel said to Naaman, right? You know, one of the all-time classic sayings, Something I personally look forward to before I have kids that as a parent you get to say is, I brought you into this world and I can take you out. Now, uh, I haven't used that too much with my little kids, but uh, I plan on doing it in the future. But I'll have to, the problem is that I'll have to explain to them and say, well, I just like to say that. But it's not really true because, you know, actually God gave you life, not me, and, uh, and you know, only God can take you life. It's just fun to say that, right? Um, and, and you know, that's why taking a life is not only a crime, but it's an offense against God, because God alone is the author of life, and God alone has the right to take life. And to take a life is to put yourself in God's chair and do something which only God has the right to do. There's another thing that only God can do. Only God can fulfill your deepest needs and desires. You know, all people have certain deep-rooted needs and desires. All people have a desire for love and a desire for acceptance, a desire for fulfillment and purpose and meaning in their life. All people have a desire for truth and for perfection. C.S. Lewis said this, if we find ourselves with desires that nothing in this world can satisfy, 
then the most probable explanation is that we were not made for this world, we were made for another world. And so another way that you can put yourself in God's place is if you will let other people look to you to meet their greatest needs, which can only be met in God. I think this often happens in relationships, obviously. I think it often happens in romantic relationships, it can easily happen in parental relationships, even in friendships. Every person has these deep-rooted needs and desires that can only be fulfilled by God by coming to know Him and being in a relationship with Him through Jesus Christ. But of course, people seek that fulfillment, that love and acceptance, which can only be found in God. They seek it in a multitude of things, right? Everything from romantic relationships to money to possessions to hobbies to work to everything. And what happens is that you end up with parents, for example, who look to their children to fulfill the deepest needs and longings of their hearts. Think about that. That poor kid, right? You come into this world, you're like six weeks old, and this parent is saying without words, fulfill me. You're here to fulfill me. Think about that poor kid. You know, parents are here for their parents, not kids. Parents are here for their to take care of their kids, not kids, to fulfill their parents' deepest needs. And you end up with, on the other hand, you end up with boyfriends and girlfriends and husbands and wives who are looking to their partner to fulfill them, fulfill in me the deepest needs and desires of my heart, which can only be fulfilled by God. One of the best things that a married person can do is realize that their spouse will never be able to the deepest longings of their heart. They will never be able to fulfill the deepest needs of their soul. And, and, and likewise, they will never be able to fulfill their spouse's deepest needs. It is only through the gospel of Jesus Christ that we find the fulfillment of our deepest needs and desires. It's only in the gospel that we find that we are fully loved without condition, as we are. We are fully accepted as we are. It's only through the gospel that we find the truth and perfection that our souls long for. It's only through the gospel that we find the redemption from this world that we desperately desire. And when you found that fulfillment of your deepest longings and desires in God, through the gospel, you know what happens, what, the, what ability that gives you? It's a resource. It gives you the ability to actually become a better parent and a better friend and a better spouse because here's why. You're no longer looking to that other person and saying, fulfill me. You're no longer looking to them to do something which they're incapable of doing anyway. So rather than being a leech on them to do something that they can't do, you're actually able to just come alongside them and focus on being a spouse and being a parent and being a friend. And it goes all the way down. The next one is this. Only God can be the ultimate moral authority. Whenever you decide that you alone will determine what is right and wrong for you, rather than following God's word, you are putting yourself in God's chair. You're putting yourself in His place. That was actually a problem that Adam and Eve had, and something many people do today. Next is this. Only God can know what you really need. Only God can know what you really need. In Matthew chapter 6, as part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about anxiety and worry. 
And then what he says there is this. The cure for anxiety and excessive worry is to look to your Heavenly Father. Let's put your eyes on your Heavenly Father and see this, that only your Father in Heaven knows exactly what you need and only your Father in Heaven has the power to give you exactly what you need. Think about this phrase. This is something I've been thinking about this week. Excessive worry comes when you are absolutely sure that you know exactly what needs to happen and you are afraid that God won't get it right. Think about this again. Excessive worry happens when you're absolutely sure that you know exactly what needs to happen, but you're afraid that God won't get it right. You're afraid that God will miss it. Because you know what needs to happen. You're explaining to him, God, this is what needs to happen, so please make it happen. In other words, you're so, when we're so absolutely sure that we know exactly what God needs to do, we are essentially putting ourselves in the place of God, because only God can know what I really need. Only God has that perfect, full knowledge and insight. Only God knows the end from the beginning. And so what you and I need to do, what will help us actually in life, is, is to take ourselves out of God's chair and admit, there are a lot of things that I think would be good, I would like for this to happen, but I admit that I don't have full knowledge. I don't really know what I need. So God, I'll let you take your place in your chair. I'll let you decide. And the more you get out of God's chair, the less you will struggle with excessive worry and anxiety. Because you're resting in the knowledge that your Father in Heaven knows exactly what you need and He has the power alone to give you exactly. And here's the final one, something that only God can do. Only God can judge. And really, this is the issue here in our story. Only God can judge. This is the, this is the place of God that Joseph refuses to put himself in. And this is really interesting because essentially what Joseph's saying is that every person who holds a grudge, every person who refuses to forgive or takes out revenge on somebody else, they are putting themselves in the place of God. You know, when God says, like in Romans chapter 12, we read that God says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You know, some people, you can read that and think, wow, God seems kind of angry, but that's not at all it. Right before that it says, don't take revenge on people, leave vengeance to God. In other words, when God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, you know what he's saying? Get out of my chair. That's my chair. Only I have the right, only I have the knowledge, only I have the power to judge perfectly. Because you know, you and me, we, we do judge sometimes, right? But what happens is that we don't have perfect knowledge. So we just get bits and pieces of a story, and then we rush to conclusions. We can misunderstand things. We can make wrong estimations of who did what and who was at fault in the given situation. How many times has that happened to you? That you ended up at odds with somebody tension with somebody because one of you got part of the story and then jumped to a conclusion without having all the information. And that, that is really a very freeing thing when you realize that you don't have to judge anybody. God's going to take care of that. That's his business. He'll take care of that. That's not your job. It's not my job. We're just free to love people. And, and we can let God take care of the judgment. Now, judgment and discernment are two different things, but judgment, taking pain back vengeance, 
That's God's. It's a freeing thing when you realize that you're not responsible for teaching anybody else or past children. So Joseph avoids God's chair. That's the first one in verse 19. In verse 20, we see the next thing that Joseph does. Joseph takes God's view. Joseph takes God's view. He says this, As for you, one of the most profound verses in the Bible, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. One of the most profound, deep statements in the whole Bible for our understanding of suffering and evil and the hardships of life. And it speaks of providence. And the message of this verse is this. Yes, we live in a world where there is evil, where people sin and do evil things, but God is greater than evil. God is greater than sin. God is greater than us. And God can even use bad things for good. Because God is bigger than evil. He's bigger than us. And God can take even the worst circumstances and make them into something glorious and good. And even use it for His purposes. You know, I think Joseph essentially will hear what he's saying is this. I never would have wanted my life to go the way that it went. I suffered a lot and it was hard. But truth be told, looking back, I wouldn't change anything. Because in hindsight, I, I thank God for what He did. Because I see that now it's beautiful and glorious, and this was His plan from now along. You know, I was talking to somebody after church last Sunday about some stuff that Rosemary and I have been going through for the last couple of years. And, um, and I was telling her, you know, how Rosemary and I really, we have some really great testimonies to share of. God's faithfulness to us over the last couple of years. We have seen God do miracles. We have seen God answer prayers in amazing ways. We have seen God make things happen which should not have happened in, in the natural world, in a normal circumstance. You know, over the last few years, we've just accumulated these testimonies of God's goodness and grace and faithfulness to us. But here's the thing. Man, I, I gotta tell you, it's glorious to have those testimonies, but it was not very much fun getting those testimonies. Do you know what I'm talking about? Can you relate to that? It is glorious to be on this side of it, to be able to share those stories of how God was gracious and faithful to us. But let me tell you what, those stories were born out of a lot of difficulty. They were born out of a lot of uh, difficulty and hardship, even sorrow sometimes. And and things that, honestly, I would have never wished for. You know, um, there, I would even say this, that I would never wish those things that happened, some of those things that happened to us, I would never wish them on anybody. But looking back, here's the thing, I wouldn't change a thing. See, that's problems. Because now I can see how God used these things, which were even terrible and even hard in, in our lives, and, and He used them to bring us closer to Him. Use them to bring glory to his name. And it's good and glorious. But I've never wished those things on anybody. I would have never wanted those things in my life. And with each trial that we go through, see what happens is that, that we get to see God's faithfulness and God's providence in the midst of it. And what that does is that it builds our confidence in his character even more. And the next thing that comes along we experience this, it's not fun, we're not excited about it, but you know what? We are very much hopeful, and we know that God has been faithful in the past, and He'll continue to be faithful, because that's who He is, and we've experienced it. 
And we just need to walk by faith until our faith becomes sight. You know, the story is told of an old minister. And he had a unique gifting for reaching out to those who were distressed and discouraged. And he carried an old woven bookmark. It was made of silk threads which were woven together uh, into a pattern on the front. But the back of it, where all the knots, all the threads were tied together, it was just knotted and tied, and it was just a hopeless mess of ugly, tangled knots. So what this minister would do is that he would take this bookmark and he would show it to a troubled person. He would ask them, can you make sense of this for me? He would show them the back of it while well, it's just a mess of tangled knots was. And they would say, no, it just looks like a mess of knots. And he'd turn it over and of course it was kind of a woven tapestry. It was a, a black background with white words and said, God is and the point is this, when, when events in our lives just seem tangled and meaningless, like they're just a senseless mess, it's because we can only see one side of the tapestry. You know, your life is like a tapestry that God is weaving, and from below, the view where you're standing it just looks like a bunch of knots. But if you could see it from above, if you could see it from God's perspective, you would just see this glorious, beautiful work of art that God is creating for His glory and for your ultimate good. And here Joseph is, is, what he's doing when he speaks to his brothers, he's saying, you know, what you meant for evil, God meant it for good. What he's doing is he's taking God's perspective. He's telling them, brothers, I have forgiven you, and I'm not bitter. I'm not holding the grudge. You know why? Not because you're such good guys, but because my faith is in God. Joseph didn't have the text of Romans 8, 28, that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called for his purposes, but you know what? He had the truth of it. But I wonder how many of us, we have the text of it, but we haven't yet taken hold of the truth of it. Ultimately, our lives are not in the hands of men. They're in the hands of God, who overrules all things for his glory. Even when people oppose his plans and try to stop his purposes, the acts of their opposition are actually fulfilling the purposes and plans of God. Isn't that amazing? Think about this. Here in our story. This whole thing happened. It all started because Joseph went to his brother and said, God gave me a dream. I'm going to be your savior. One day you're going to bow before me. They said, we will not let you rule over us. We will not let that happen. So what do they do? They attack him and sell him into slavery. But unbeknownst to them, by doing that, they're actually only fulfilling that dream itself. They're actually fulfilling the purpose of God by trying, and they think they're opposing it. They don't even realize that God's providential. He overrules all things for his glory. Think about this. Same thing happened with Jesus. In the book of Acts, we read how the apostles came to this realization they would preach about, that these people opposed Jesus. They tried to oppose him, even to death, but in killing him, they just fulfilled the purpose of God, unknowingly. They thought they were stopping him, but all they were doing was furthering what he had come to do. C.S. Lewis, in his autobiography, he tells the story of a school teacher that he had when he was growing up, and the school teacher was known by the nickname The Great Knock. Uh, I think his name was Kirkpatrick, but he was known as the Great Knock. And this teacher spent a lot of time 
with C.S. Lewis, trying to convince him of atheism, and, and he was successful. He was convinced, and C.S. Lewis, as a young man, was an atheist, and, uh, and he would spend a lot of time teaching him how to debate for atheism, how to build, you know, waterproof arguments, how to debate it, how to do it well. But years later, C.S. Lewis became a Christian, and it turned out that this teacher, the great Nock, who had been trying to teach him to argue for atheism, all he had really done was to prepare this man, C.S. Lewis, to be one of the greatest defenders of the Christian faith in the 20th century. And here's the point. God is above all things. He's providentially working in your life all the time. Oftentimes when you don't even realize it, and he is above all, and he is weaving together a great and beautiful tapestry. From your perspective, it might just look like a bunch of knots. But from his perspective, it's a work of art that he's weaving together. And the day will come when you will get to see it from his perspective. That's what happens here at the end of Joseph's life. That he gets the view above the loom. He gets to see the tapestry that God's weaving. He's saying, you know what? I walked by faith until my faith became sight. And now I'm here and I can see it. The last thing that Joseph does after he takes God's view is that he images God's love. He says this in verse 21, Do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones, lest he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. These men sinned against him, but instead of giving them what they deserved, he gives them grace. He images God's love. That is what God does with us. Instead of paying them back, what does he do? He loves them and he blesses them not just in words, not just with emotions, but in practical ways. He cares for them. He speaks kindly to them. This is the heart of a man who has really been touched by the grace of God. Because what the grace of God does is that, it, number one, it humbles you, and number two, it assures you. Here's why the grace of God humbles you. Because you don't deserve it. Grace by nature is totally undeserved. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. You can try. But you're not going to do it because that's the nature of grace. It is not deservable. It's not meritable. It's just a gift. So grace humbles you because you can't do anything to deserve it. And grace assures you, assures you that God loves you and cares for you. And when your heart has really been touched by God's grace, when you've really begun to understand God's grace towards you, that unmerited, undeserved favor, what happens is that like Joseph, you become gracious person. He's able to look at his brothers and be gracious to them. They don't deserve him to be nice to them, but then again, he didn't deserve for God to be kind to him. But God was kind. They don't deserve for him to take care of, for him to take care of them. But then again, he doesn't deserve for God to provide for him in the way that God has. So he's able, having experienced God's grace, he's able to become a gracious person. And throughout these chapters of the book of Genesis, the cover the story of Joseph, what we see is that Joseph is a very interesting foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. There are a ton of parallels that are similar between Joseph and Jesus. For example, Joseph was the beloved son of his father. Jesus was also the beloved son of his father, and the father said, in him I am well pleased. Like Joseph, Jesus was sent by his father on a mission to go find his brethren. And like Joseph, those whom he was sent to rejected him and harmed him. Like Joseph, Jesus was sold for only a 
few pieces of silver. Like Joseph, Jesus began his ministry at age 30. Like Joseph, Jesus also spent time down in Egypt. Like Joseph, Jesus' rejection and mistreatment ultimately led to the fulfillment of God's purpose and the salvation of many people. And like Joseph, Jesus forgave his enemies and poured out grace and mercy. In the last few verses of Genesis, we read this about the end of Joseph's life. Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house, and Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land from the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry out my bones from you. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. And they embalmed him, and his coffin was put in Egypt. Joseph ends his life well. Look how he ends his life. This is the goal. He ends his life loving people, forgiving those who sinned against him, blessing everybody he can, and he's got grandkids on his knees, and he's telling everybody to trust in the Lord because the Lord's promises yeah, and amen, they are true. God keeps all his promises. He says, God promised that he would take us out of this land and bring us back to Canaan, and he will indeed do it. Trust in the Lord. That's how he ends his life. So, so Joseph dies, and they embalm him, and they put him in a coffin. But here's what's interesting. They don't bury him. You ever think about this? They don't bury this man. He asked them, don't bury me. I want to be buried in the promised land, in Canaan. So don't bury me. So they leave him in this box, sitting above ground. For how long? For 400 years. That's a long time, right? So think about this. This coffin is sitting there, this box with his bones in it for 400 years. And you know that each generation, when the kids get old enough and they start getting curious, they say, Dad, Grandpa, what's that box? Well, that's a man named Joseph. He trusted the Lord. Some terrible things happened to him, but you know what? God was faithful. God was working through all of it to bring salvation to our family, to our nation, and many other people as well. And, well, Dad, why isn't he buried like everybody else? Well, because he said, this is not my home. This is not the place. This is not my final destination. I am here, and I want you to take me to Canaan. Because kids, one day, God's going to fulfill his promise to us. He's going to take us to the promise that's how Genesis ends. Now, I don't know how you feel about it, but I feel like it's a little bit anticlimactic, right? Like, I, you know, I watched this movie last week, and at the end of the movie, there's this airplane going down the runway, and, like, people driving after it and shooting at it. Now, that's a grand finale, right? Like, dragging a car chase, shoot out. This is the kind of thing you expect. But here, we don't get anything. We end up with uh, a dead guy in a box. That's how the story ends. That's a bit anticlimactic, right? We began with creation. I mean, how much more intense can you get than that? God's just calling things into being here and there. And we end with a dead guy in a box. But here's why. Because this isn't the end of the story. This is only the end of the beginning, right? It's just the end of the beginning of this grand story of how Jesus is coming into the world and he's going to save us from our sins and he is going to make all things new. Isn't that good news? And the story isn't over. In fact, you know what? The story is still being written today. 
And the amazing thing is this, try to wrap your head around this, that when you put your faith in the gospel, and you become a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, God takes your life and he makes it part of his story. This grand story of redemption, which began so long ago with these events here in Genesis, of how God is saving people and setting them free from the curse of sin and death, and he's, he's even using them like he used Joseph to be part of what he's doing and to fulfill his purposes. And one day, very soon, this story that God is writing will come to an end, and the story of redemption will be complete. But here's the thing. On that day, when our redemption, when the story of redemption is complete, God's Word tells us that that will be both a glorious day and a terrible day. Because there will be a great separation. Right? There will be a separation of those who have received God's grace and salvation and those who have rejected God's grace and salvation, which is provided through Jesus Christ. And for those who have received the grace of God and the salvation that God has provided through Jesus, they will experience the fullness of redemption, the restoration of God's original intention. But there will be no more sin, and that means there will be no more death, there will be no more sickness, there will be no more pain. Every tear will be wiped away, there will be fullness of joy in the presence of God forever. But for those who have rejected this great salvation, this grace that's been offered, whether actively or, or many do it passively, right, by just putting it off and not, not taking care of it, ignoring it. These people, they will be on their own. They will be utterly lost because here's why they will be judged according to their works and no one will see. So that day when the story ends, it will be both a glorious day and a terrible day. And so may I remind you today that the gospel is indeed good news, but it is also urgent news. The reason God sent his son into the world, the reason why God became a man, was because apart from him we are utterly lost in our sins. We are subject to wrath and we're on our own for judgment. That's what we deserve. But God became a man because he loved you. And he lived the life that he should have lived. And he died the death that you should have died. So that rather than receiving the judgment that you deserve, you might receive the grace of God which you don't deserve. Which he offers you freely because of it. So if you're here today and you have not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I urge you to do it today. Because the day is coming when this story will be wrapped up. I urge you to join in and take part in that great story of redemption that began with the events here in Genesis, which God is still writing today. Amen? Let's stand and pray.